through the book of Romans and um, very, very sad to have to leave Romans 8. Um, I've found so much comfort and joy and hope in Romans 8. But there's so many other portions of the Bible I could find that in. And so as we're going to look at today, we, we are going to do that. I want to say one thing before we read God's word. Uh, we, we have a program here at CVPC in which we uh, pray for our young people. It's called the Pray For Me campaign. Some of you probably heard it. Some of you haven't. But it is an amazing opportunity for you um, to pray for the young people in the church. And I, I don't know if you've looked around lately, but we've had quite a few young people in the church. Both are, you know, our college students, which we love, but also our covenant children. And there is nothing that moves heaven on behalf of our covenant children like you praying for our covenant children. If, if we as a church are serious, serious about seeing the next generation grow up to love Christ and to serve Christ, we need to be praying for them. There's just, just no way around it. We need to be praying for our young people. So, so hear me today. If you currently are not signed up to pray for anyone, see Laura. Laura, wave your hand in the back. Go to her and sign up to pray for our young people. We need people praying for our young people. We need multiple people praying for our young people, especially my kids. They need like three or four, they need a team of people, but all of our kids too, right? It's not just enough for us to have one person praying for them. We need like four or five people praying for each child. Because if we're going to move heaven on behalf of our children, we need to be praying for them. So please sign up for the Pray For Me campaign. And let's have an abundance of people praying for our young people. Because they live in a culture and in a world that's catechizing them away from Christ. And we need to make sure we're praying for them that they come to Christ fully and completely, not just believe, but they are persuaded that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So that's my, that's my appeal. All right, Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the text. We're going to pray, and then I'm going to tell you why I chose the book of Ephesians. All right, that, that's how it's going to work today. A little, by, by the way, a little bit different sermon today. This is more an introduction into the book of Ephesians, which I've never done. I like, so I'm, I'm like, you know, you all are like my guinea pigs. I'm going to see if this works. But I think, I think it'll be a blessing to you because it gives you a way of looking at the scriptures that I think is super powerful and a blessing for you. So hear now the word of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace 
which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, all flesh is grass and the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and grace as found in the gospel. Lord, as we, we just read uh, Paul uh, expounding upon the riches that is found in the gospel, or we can't even fathom that kind of riches. We could only read about it, and even now we have a little foretaste of it. But I pray that as we, come, as we have come into this place today, that we might leave just seeing the riches of Christ that much more, because you are a glorious, wonderful, amazing God. And when we stare into you, when we look and see you for who you are, we cannot help but worship. Amen and amen. Well, Lord, thank you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Um, I, I want to start off by saying this. I, if you know me, you know I have a burden for the church. I love the church. I know it's fashionable nowadays for people to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, what do they say? I'm spiritual, not religious. Um, and, and, you know, I don't have to go to church to worship God and, and all that stuff. And, and people say that. I, I'm not one of them. I need to be in church. Not just because I'm the pastor, but because what the Bible tells me is that Christ died for the? And when he comes back, he's coming back for the? So that means the church matters. The church matters. And so I understand what people mean when they say we don't need church to worship God. I understand what they mean by all that. But listen, we, we need the church, right? Because the church is the place where the Lord Jesus Christ, he has promised his presence. And just by being in here, he said that there is a blessing in the church. Now, why do I tell you? I tell you that for this reason. One of the things that's happening to the church now is the church is not, uh, has lost its identity. The church has lost who it is. Not only has the church lost our identity, but we've lost what we're supposed to be doing, and that is to be a holy people. And not only have we lost our identity, not only have we lost the ability to be holy, but we've lost our perspective on, in the world. And, and one of the things, you might say, well, Pastor Ness, that's a bold statement, right? Do you speak for all of Christendom? No. But here's how I know that. You ready? Here's how I know that. This is called a spiritual hack. Recently, we had a prayer meeting for our young people. It was at uh, the middle school. And we, we had a prayer group, and all of us gathered there, and we prayed for our young people. And then we asked people to give prayer requests. 
And do you know what the number one prayer request is? Anybody? You didn't know it was interactive? You know what the number one prayer request is? I'll tell you, it's free. The number one prayer request is for revival. Isn't that interesting? That was the number one prayer request. The number one prayer request was, Lord, send a revival. Now, put on your thinking caps and ask yourself the question, why revival? And it's not just us in Christendom that's saying it. You listen to political figures, they're talking about a revival. I mean, you, you listen to on television, everyone's talking about a revival. Why is everyone talking about a revival? Why does everybody say the church need a revival? Think with me, what does a revival do? Go back in the Old Testament. What does a revival do? A revival restores the identity of God's people, doesn't it? Not only that, but a revival brings the Lord's people into holiness, does it not? And not only that, a revival changes the perspective of God's people, does it not? That's exactly what a revival does. And that's why everyone's praying for it. That's why everyone's asking us to pray for it. Because anyone who's in the church knows this. They know that Christians have lost their identity. They've lost their sense of holiness and they've lost their perspective. And they want to get it back. Now, let me say this. This sermon series is not about causing a revival. Because if you read through the Bible, there's one thing that's clear. None of us can cause revival. None of us can, can will our ways to a revival. That's up to the Holy Spirit, and we should be praying for it. But one of the things we can do, and one of the things we ought to do, is to look at what the Bible says about our identity, holiness, and perspective. And that's why I chose the book of Ephesians, because these are three big terms in it. These are big, three big themes in it. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk through the book and show us what these things mean in depth, right? That's, that's kind of how it's gonna go today. And so the first thing I want you to see, one big theme in the book of Ephesians, if you're taking notes, here's the big theme, it's identity. It's identity. All through the book of Ephesians, talks about identity. Where we see that in the passage? All right, look at verse number one. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, that are faithful in Christ Jesus. I want you to connect saints and in Christ Jesus together. Because the number one identity that a Christian has is that we are in Christ. That's the primary way that Paul talks about being a Christian. He says that we are in Christ. Now that word in Christ is used 180 times in the New Testament. 143 times of those are used by Paul. Not just that, 35 of those are used in this letter, and, and at least nine of those are used in the verses I just read, verse one through nine. That's how important it is, this whole idea of being in Christ. Now, you might be looking at me and say, well, Pastor, and so what, that we are in Christ? What does that actually mean? Well, write down another term. It's called union with Christ. Union with Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. It's to mean united with Christ. Paul says it like this in Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says that's our identity. It's rooted in the gospel. 
Now, one aspect of that, of course, is theological. All the graces that come with being united with Christ are found in the gospel. What is that? It means that God foreknew us, God elected us, God predestined us, God adopted us, God saved us, God will glorify us. All of that is what it means to be in Christ. But remember this, Paul is not just a theologian. He's not just an exegete of, of scripture. He's an exegete of the heart. And I want to show that to you in this passage. Notice how Paul exegetes our hearts as he talks about union with Christ. Let's begin. I'll show you at least six examples. And I want to show you something powerful because I wish someone had taught me this when I first became a Christian, by the way. What does it mean to be united to Christ and have my identity grounded in the person and work of Christ? Because I could tell you, I chase after everything to find my sense of identity and purpose. Everything. You pick it. I tried it at some point because I was desperate to ground my identity in something. And I wish when I became a believer, somebody had opened up Ephesians 1 and showed me how Christ satisfies every aspect of our heart's longing. That we don't need to go anywhere for anything else or chase after anything else. Everything can be found in Christ. And notice how Paul says that. And notice how he opens up our hearts. First of all, in verse number three, Paul says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us. Notice, underline that in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. What's the first thing Paul is saying that you need to understand about union with Christ that's deeply practical? Number one is this. All of our happiness is found in Christ. All of it. That's what it means to be blessed. It means to find all of our happiness and joy rooted in Christ. That's one of our deepest needs. Don't you like to be happy? Don't you want to be happy? Don't you want to find joy? We all do. Why do you think there's so many amusement parks? Why do you think there are all, all, so many good shows on television? Why do you think there's food uh, places everywhere? You ever wonder why? Or like, you go in Fort Oglethorpe and you drive down Fort Oglethorpe, there's at least 50 fast food places. Why? Because food makes us happy. It might not make you happy, but it's obvious it makes me happy, amen? <laughs> food makes us happy. There's no end on what we could spend money on in order to make us happy. Why? Because happiness is a deep need. Notice the second thing that Paul says in verse number four. Even as he chose us in him. What's that all about? What does it mean to be chosen and elected by God? Now, we'll get into that a little bit deeper later on. But what Paul says here is this. We have a deep need to be loved. Not just to find happiness, but we have a deep need to be loved. Everyone wants to be loved. Look at the person next to you. They want to be loved. The person when you go into the Walmart that's behind a cashier, they want to be loved. Every one of us want to be loved. And so the big question is, what are you seeking in order to be loved? Notice the third thing, and again, this is Paul opening up the recesses of our hearts. We desire to be happy. We desire to be loved. Notice verse number seven, our desire for freedom. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, right? 
It's in Christ, in him, we have redemption. That's the point. In other words, in him, we have freedom. We all want to be free. We want to have freedoms. We're Americans. We want to be free. So what brings the most freedom? Is it the Constitution? Is it our local government? What brings you the most freedom? Paul says you can only be free in Christ principally. Notice the, sec- the, the other thing that Paul says in verse number 9. He says, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of him to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is he saying here? What's all this business about making known the mystery of his will? Here's the point that Paul is making. Your purpose. What is your purpose? That's found in Christ. It cannot be found in any hobbies or any job or any pursuit that you have. Your first and ultimate purpose is found in in Christ and Christ alone. Notice verse number 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. What is this business about an inheritance? It means freedom from worry for our finances. Anybody in here worried about their finances? See, one person in the back there, amen? Of course we are. Paul says we have an inheritance that won't fade. Are you resting in that? Not just that, but notice the, four, the, the last thing in verse number 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul says this, that when you are in Christ, you have an abundance of assurance and hope. Let me ask you a question. What brings you assurance and hope? I don't mind telling you right before I go to bed, I'm a little neurotic. I go downstairs and I checked every single lock in our home, twice. My wife will tell you, I could be in bed and I'll just get up and I'll go and I'll lock, make sure every door is locked. Why is that? Let me ask you a question. Why, why do you have a security system in your home? It's not because you want to spend money. It's because it brings you a sense of assurance. And Paul is saying, look deep within you and ask yourself the question, what brings you happiness and love? What do you think will bring you freedom? How will you know your purpose? What brings you safety? What brings you assurance and hope? And why is Paul asking this question? Remember who he's writing to? He's writing to the church at Ephesus. This is the, this is the capital of the spiritual capital of Rome. They have all sorts of gods that they can look to and find their purpose and hope in. And Paul is saying none of those things can do it. No identity you create for yourself, no no thing that you pursue after will be able to give you the kind of blessing that being in Christ does. He, He puts that on us. Where else can you find this comprehensive thing other than in the gospel? But yet we try it Anyway, when I was a kid, I used to watch um, the Superman movies. Uh, Well, the show more than anything else. I I thought the old movies were kind of boring. But um, it was with Terry Hatcher and Dane Kane. That's when I started watching uh, Superman. And, you know, as I watched the show, uh, the way my brain works, you know, I'm a philosopher at heart. And so I always ask myself the question, how is it that Superman could, could seal his identity with his glasses? Anyone else like that? Yeah. You know, like Clark Kent, Superman. 
Clark Kent, Superman. And it's just, it's ridiculous, right? In fact, SNL, SNL uh, with Terry Hatcher and Dan Kane actually made an entire skit on this. That's hilarious. You should look it up. But it's so funny because to think that Superman could create an entire identity with a pair of glasses, that people who know him and see him every day, just because he puts on a pair of glasses, they don't know who he is. And, and, and to me, as I was watching the show, I was like, really? He created an entire identity with a pair of glasses. And everybody believed him. You know what's equally as ridiculous, and we do this all the time, is the identities we try to create for ourselves around things like race, around things like our jobs, around things like our sexuality, around things like family around things like our education. Yeah, all of us rightly laughed because Superman tried to create an entire identity out of a pair of glasses, but my goodness, look at the kinds of things we try to build our identity around to find joy and happiness and peace. We should be laughing as well. One of my favorite scenes in the Bible is Luke, found in Luke chapter 10. And I read it often. Because in Luke 10, um, Jesus' disciples, they come back to him. And man, they, they're taking a victory lap. All right, Jesus, you wouldn't believe what just happened. We cast out demons. Uh, serpents and scorpions bit us and, and did nothing to us. Jesus, I mean, you wouldn't believe the things that we did in your name. And they're high-fiving each other and saying amen. And Jesus comes in, you, you know what Jesus says. Jesus says, rejoice not that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your name is written where? In the book of life. You know what Jesus is saying? You're all happy and rejoicing because you have the power to cast out demons. But really, the source of your rejoicing should be in the fact that you're in me. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourself. I don't know. Some of you I don't know. Some of you I know. Where do you find your happiness and joy? Is it because you're the smartest person in your class? You get straight A's? You can play instruments really well? That you're particularly uh, attractive? What do you find your significance and hope in? Because at the end of the day, what Jesus is saying to each and every one of us inside here today, that if it's not in him, rooted and grounded in him, it's nothing. Now, you might be sitting there and you might say, all right, pastor, you convinced me. <laughs> Time out, yo. Personal foul. But how do I do that? Now, that's a great question. And, and here is what I'll say. Preach the gospel to yourself. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Every, every Saturday, I get a text from one of my really good friends. He's a pastor. His name is Pastor Craig. It's every Saturday night. And, and every Saturday night, the texts are usually 
are something like this. He'll say, remember that your identity isn't in how good of a pastor you are. Your identity isn't in the position that you have at work. Your identity isn't in the grades you make, how well-behaved your kids are, how little sin you committed this week, the number of books you've read, the amount of degrees you have, and the amount of friends and money you have. Remember that you are completely and utterly justified because you are in Christ. Now, I tell you that because that's what you need to be telling yourself each and every day. You are not justified. You are not special because of what you do or who you are. You are special because God chose you to be in him. That's how you preach the gospel to yourself daily, and you need to be reminded of that daily. Because otherwise, if you put your faith and trust and hope in anything else, it will fail you. It will fail you. So Christian, remember your identity. Secondly, remember your holiness. Holiness. Look at verse number one. It says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. All right, so circle that. And then go down to verse number four, where he says, even he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Watch it. What's the, what's the result of our salvation? That we should be holy and blameless before him. So why were you and I chosen? Why were you and I made Christians? So that we might be holy. Essentially, what he's saying is this. The holy ones need to be holy in the world. Now, whenever we talk about holiness, everyone immediately says, Pastor, that sounds like legalism. It's not. It's not legalism. Holiness is what we're called to. Okay, let me demystify holiness for a moment. Let's think of holiness like we think of hygiene. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? I bet you when you left the house today, you brushed your teeth, most of us took a bath, all of us probably made sure we had clean clothes on, all of us looked in the mirror and made sure our hair was fixed. All of us made sure that we were clean and we put on cologne and perfume and we walked out the door. And we came in here today and I appreciate it, right? Your neighbor appreciates it as well. You look good and you smell good. Now, when you walked inside here today, did anybody run up to you and say, look at these bunch of legalists? No, why not? Because, see, we understand that when we do these things, those are, those are good, not just for us, but those around us. That we've been conditioned to look good outwardly because that's the best thing for us. Well, you know what the scripture says? The best thing for a Christian is to be clean inwardly. You know what's interesting? The early church, um, they had two dictates. They had two things that define a Christian in the early church was holiness and generosity. Holiness and generosity, that's it. Being pure, purity and generosity. That's what defined a Christian. And that's what should define a Christian now. If you are that fastidious about how you look when you leave the house, the gospel demands that you be equally as concerned and fastidious about the inward man. In fact, Paul says it this way that the outward man perishes, perishes. 
But the inward man is renewed daily. And listen to me, if you care more about how you look when you leave the house outwardly, and not concerned about the condition of your heart when you leave the house, the Bible says something's wrong with that. And if anything, you should prioritize the inward man. And again, that's not legalism. I tend towards that if you're doing it purely to be right with God, but that's not what I'm talking about. The, the reason why God calls us to be holy is because he's holy. That's a reflection of who he is. And we are called to be holy just like him. And look, the only reason why I use the, the illustration of the hygiene is this. All of us understand the, the value of proper hygiene. But I don't think the church understands the value of proper holiness. You know, nowadays, I think people believe they could become a Christian and just act and do whatever they want to do. That's simply not in Scripture. Listen to me, church. The, the Word of God, the Gospel, calls us to inward holiness and inward purity in everything we do. We understand that principle when it comes to our outward body. It's time the church starts understanding it when it comes to the inward man. And if you are not practicing holiness and purity, I have good news for you. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8 and 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. And I love the next word. Everybody say it with me. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What? You hear that word cleanse? That means take an inward bath. You know, sometimes my kids, they go outside and they run around and they come in and they want to hug me. I'm like, go take a bath. I still hug them, by the way. But I want them to take a bath. And you know what God wants you to do daily? Take an inward bath. Get clean before you leave the house. Look in the spiritual mirror and clean up a little bit. Your neighbor will appreciate it. The people you work with will appreciate it. Your sweet mates at school will appreciate it. Your spouse will appreciate it. Be holy. Be holy on the inward. We shouldn't be ashamed of holiness like it's a bad or dirty word. It's a good word. We just need to do it well. All right. Enough of that. Um, let's go to perspective. This is the last one, perspective. This is actually my favorite one. I almost actually just preached on this one because it's my favorite one. Because it's the one that I think has most shaped my life. All right. Notice with me verse number two. Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what do I mean by perspective? This is what I mean by perspective. Do, do you live under the reign of grace? You know, most of us, we, we've heard it all our lives. We should live, we should, we should be gracious towards one another. But do we really understand what it means to be gracious to one another? Paul Paul actually gives us a hint in verse number 8. It says that, uh, actually in verse number 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our, of, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Lavished upon us. To live with grace and to, have, and, and to live underneath the reign of grace means that grace informs everything you do and say. That's the perspective in which you live in. I'll give you an example. Um, when I grew up in the Bahamas, we had no mountains. 
mean, it was flat. Um, in fact, the largest hill in the Bahamas is smaller than the entrance to Stanford Place, if you've ever been there, <laughs> right? I had no hills. And so when I, when I came to America, I moved to Florida. And if you know anything about Florida, Florida is almost the exact same way. We have slightly bigger hills in Florida. But then I came to North Georgia. And I remember the first time I was driving up the, the mountain, I, you know, I was, I, I was like white knuckling it all the way, sweating profusely, like, oh my Lord, this is it, right? I'm gonna die. But, um, but the church was, was kind to us. They, they gave us some tickets to go to Rock City. So I, I made it up the mountain, got my family out, and we went to that part of Rock City where we can look out and see the seven states. And that was, that was amazing. I nearly had a heart attack, but it was amazing. And what's, what's interesting, now that I'm here, one of the things that's interesting is I love to go up on a mountain and look down. You know why? Because I have a panoramic view of the world. And I, it changes the way I looked around where I live. Now, when I come down on the mountain, you know what happens? I become more and more myopic. In other words, my vision tunnels to where I could only see one or two states at a time. Now, here's the point I want to make, and don't miss this. So often, Christians live a myopic life. They, they just have this view of what, what's right in front of them. It's very selfish, very self-serving. But they don't live by grace. You know what's interesting to me? Paul was in prison when he wrote Ephesians. And look at, how, look at the language that he's using. Blessed. Uh, notice in verse number 7, he talks about the riches of his grace. And then in, in, verse number two, in chapter number 2, verse number 4, he talks about the great love. And then in uh, verse number 7 of the same chapter, chapter number 2, the riches of his grace and kindness. And then in chapter 3 and verse number 8, he talks about the riches of Christ. And then in verse number 16 of chapter 3, he talks about the riches of his glory. On and on and on, Paul is talking about blessing and riches and glory. And he's in prison. Look, I've, I've read after a lot of authors who have written books in prison. Pilgrim's Progress was written in prison. Don Coyote was written in prison. Desfundus was written in prison. All these great works of art were written by people in prison. Uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Birmingham Letters in Prison. You go on and on and on. And if you read those letters, you know what you don't hear? People saying, bless God. Praise God for his riches in Christ Jesus. That just doesn't happen. Why? Because they're too myopic. And why was Paul able to do it? Because Paul had a perspective that was panoramic. And let me tell you today, uh, atheists love to tell Christians that we're narrow-minded. That couldn't be so far from the truth. We have a panoramic view of grace that their myopic view cannot even match because we see things from God's perspective. Let me ask you a question. When something happens in your life, do you work to see it from God's perspective? Do you work to see it from a position of grace up on the mountaintop? Or are you content with just seeing the walls of the prison that you've made for yourself? 
Nothing stunts your Christian growth like having a narrow-minded view of your circumstances and where you are in Christ. When Paul says grace to you and peace from God our Father, he's challenging you to see your life for what it is, one big journey of grace. As uh, David says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Do you believe that? Or you still want to look at the prison you say you find yourself in? Look, Christ, when he came to earth, said, I came to set you free. And a huge part of that freedom is living in grace. Are you living in grace? Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's one of the most fascinating things I've ever read Christ said. Because each one of those words, way, truth, and life, are meant to tell us that in him there is purpose, there's meaning, and there's joy. Are you seeking after that? Father, we thank you so much for the hope of the gospel. Ah, Lord, um, would that we could be here worshiping in your presence all day. Help us. Help us. Um, we need you. We need you to uh, help us to ground our, our identity in Christ, Christ alone. We need you to help us to live in holiness. And most importantly, we need you to help us to have a perspective that's not narrowed to our circumstances, but through the lens of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.